early in John's writing, um, chapter 2 to be exact, Jesus enters the temple and it is a scene to behold. Uh, in some ways, you want to say it's a man scene, but it's more than just a man scene. It is one of those scenes where you just stand back in amazement. As he walks in, he finds the exchangers there who are exchanging the Roman currency for the money that was legal or uh, able to be used for tithes and offerings. And so they had they had that exchange business going on there, and they were charging just ridiculous rates uh, of exchange. You could also, if you came there from a long trip, you could also buy your sacrifices in the outer court of the Gentiles. And uh, and it was really just a uh, a market fair as Jesus entered in as Jesus entered into that place. And the Bible says, so filled with zeal for the Lord's house, he made a whip and he drove them out, turning over money tables. There's a few scenes in the Bible I'd like to see. I think that's one of them, off at a distance, sort of out of the way. It is during that scene that Jesus gives us a, um, an illustration, a prophecy or a prediction, if you will, something that will actually stick with Jesus, his whole ministry, and will be hurled back at him as he's at his trial when they are trying to find a reason to condemn him, uh, justify the crucifixion and handing him over to Pilate. And it is the words that's found in verse number 19 of John 2. No need to turn there. I'll read it for you. You can just mark the reference down. And he says to them, tear down this temple, and in three days I'll build it up again. Now, of course, the, the people are astonished at what he says, and they were wondering, he says, 46 years it took him to build this temple, and you say, tear it down, and in three days you're going to raise it back up. But we know, because John tells us at the end of that section, that he wasn't speaking about the building that they had put so much stock and confidence in. The whole system of worship wrapped around, and their idea of God's favor being on them because of that physical structure. He was talking about his own body. And prophesying, you will tear this down. You will hand me over and crucify me, but don't worry. I'll tell you what I will do. I will raise it up in three days. Showing us just a little bit about what would take place as we come to see the latter parts of the gospel. There's another illustration Jesus uses. He uses many in his teaching to the disciples trying to get it into their heads which are rather thick like ours. Um, but nevertheless, he tells them in John chapter number 12, at the end of his life, facing his, his trial right after his triumphal entry, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We might wonder what that is, but he goes on to clarify that. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Now there's much to be said about that, but that really is the heart of the gospel message. Our faith, this, this declaration of dying and bearing fruit, this going into the ground and coming up again with life and fruitfulness is really at the heart of everything we believe. 
It's everything we hope in and rest in in this world. It's everything that we teach and preach. It explains Christianity, the death and resurrection. It is this gospel work which not just the death only, but the life or the resurrection which gives us the boldness and confidence to live in a world filled with death and chaos. In fact, so profound and so sure of this, Paul argues in what we read this morning, Ben read for us in the opening this morning, uh, of the witness of the resurrection of the dead, clarifying and, and showing us, reminding us, of all of the demonstrations that Jesus Christ is alive. I want to look at, just and glean with you this morning, just a few thoughts out of chapter number 16 of Mark, but I want to deal with a few challenges, two challenges to the resurrection of Christ, and I think may be helpful to you, maybe you personally, or maybe uh, your family, somebody in your family. Nevertheless, there are many Challenges that we come to dealing with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the first one uh, can be found in the variety uh, of the descriptions in the accounts that took place. In other words, the end of the gospel, and you read one, and it says there was one angel. You read another one, there was two angels. And so you, you kind of wonder which one is right. I would say they both are. Many skeptics have come to a place to where all of these variations of, of the resurrection account have given us the ability to just disregard it all. But I would say to you this morning that we should expect four people, four different people telling the same story to have variations and emphasis in what they tell. And that's just a natural response. Each gospel itself, each gospel writer helps fill in the resurrection events, contributing in various ways, providing the whole scheme or the whole, the whole narrative of what God wants us to know and understand about the events that had taken place that Sunday morning. We believe the Bible is inerrant, infallible, and through the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the personalities of these writers, They've given to us the account of Jesus and his resurrection. But another challenge we face, and maybe more to the point for some of us, or maybe all of us, uh, at one point in our life, people simply just don't rise from the dead. It just doesn't happen. We don't go to a graveyard and lay someone in the ground and wait around a couple of days to see what happens. We don't have that expectation especially in our scientific age where we have elevated science to be its own deity, its own God that we worship. It seems we'll accept almost anything except the validity of the Bible's claims of the supernatural miracles and events which the Bible tells us. The miracles of Jesus are hard to swallow, almost like Jonah in the well in the Old Testament. And among these things of the supernatural is this resurrection from the dead. We can spiritualize it. We can moralize it. We can make it sentimental. Well, you know what that word means. But we can do all sorts of things with it. We just can't take it as is. And yet the Bible is clear. Gospel after gospel. Epistle after epistle. Uh, word after word that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. 
Some have come with different ideas of this, and I'll just share a few of these briefly. One, they tell us that, well, maybe the disciples stole the body. And if you've ever read the narrative of the disciples, you would say this surely is the most uh, uh, far-fetched thing that you can think of. In fact, the fearful and scared and cowardness of the disciples displayed in the gospel narrative, especially during the time of Jesus' crucifixion, hardly gives you the confidence that they could throw off a Roman guard at the tomb and then steal a body, run and hide it, and then die for a lie in which they created, saying that he had raised from the dead. The chances of that being possible is, is well, it's not. Some suggest, well, maybe the women went to the wrong tomb. They were so overtaken in grief and mourning that they, they couldn't see straight, they couldn't think straight, and so they went to the wrong tomb, and the one they went to was empty. Now, of course, we know at different times of grieving that there are... There are things that don't always connect right. We're not thinking as maybe sharply and clearly. We do forget things, and we do tend to be overwhelmed with what we're facing. But let me just ask you a question that's ever stood at the grave of a loved one. Did you ever forget where you put them? I was asking my aunt when I went to my uncle's funeral the other day. It was in this, or a while back. is the same graveyard my cousin is buried, and I asked her, I said, do you know where he's at? Where's, where's graves at? And she said, oh, yeah, and she told me exactly where it's at. Uh, to say that the women just kind of forgot where they buried him would be, would be another hard thing to swallow. Others say Jesus didn't really die. He appeared dead or someone stood in for him or, or somewhere along the process he recovered from all of his wounds and beatings. And in the third day he appeared because naturally he recovered. And I assure you Romans were good at, at one thing, well, maybe two Roads and death. And they were, uh, they made an art of it. And so we affirm the reality that Jesus died again. The Bible over and over reminds us that Jesus died that Friday. He was dead, he was buried, and he rose again. Because it does not happen makes what takes place in this gospel narrative so significant and profound. Jesus did not stay dead. So let's look at the narrative together under a few headings, three headings this morning as we consider the events that had taken place then, hopefully to glean a few things for us uh, today. Let me begin reading in verse number one as we come to see this understandable grief down to verse number three. When the Sabbath was passed, and this is speaking of a Sunday morning, the Sabbath was over on Saturday at sunset, and so that was probably when they bought the spices and prepared those things to bring it early in the morning. Uh, so this would be the Sunday morning. That's why we worship on Sunday morning, by the way, for those who have always wondered that, because it's a good day. It's a new day. It's the day in which the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. But when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And what you come to look at in 
the passage, at least in Mark's telling of this, is very brief and to the point. Reading the chapter before that, this had been a horrific weekend for any of the followers of Jesus Christ. It was a time of great chaos, not just for the followers of Christ, but for Jerusalem as a whole. As they gathered together in this great execution of Jesus as a criminal. He was... Uh, taken in on on charges that were made up he was falsely accused he was beaten he was maligned and and he was mocked and taunted and he was put on a roman cross that friday the bible tells us that he died there and as he did all of this the women were looking on the son of god and the the, the one who would be the Messiah, the leader of the Jewish nation, really the hope for the whole world we find in the Old Testament, is here treated like a common criminal, like a thief. So profound is the, uh, the, the text that it tells us that at the offer of a thief or, or a man who went out healing the sick, they chose the murderer and the thief hands down. Give us Barabbas, they said. Pilate says, what shall I do with this Jesus? And they said, crucify him. Now, it was just a week earlier, what we call Palm Sunday in our Christian calendar, is just a week earlier that Jesus comes riding in Jerusalem on a donkey and people are throwing their coats down and their palm branches and praising him, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now, Lord. We beseech you is what they were praying and crying to him. And then at the span of just a few short days, they're crying something completely different. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Now you could, if you were one of his followers, you could understand the overwhelming nature of the events which has taken place, the, the expectation that now the kingdom of God is coming. Now it will be set up. He's entering into Jerusalem getting and, and cleansing all the things that needed to be cleansed. And, and just a few short days later, now he's dead. Now he's dead. I could not help but think about verse number 43 of chapter number 15. This Joseph of Arimatheus, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. After Pilate found out he was dead, Pilate gave consent to the body. He laid him in a, verse number 46, and Joseph brought a linen shroud taking him down and wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of a rock and rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb mary magdalene and mary the mother of uh, joseph was were uh, saw where he laid i don't know when the last time you read the book of genesis but did you know that it took 40 days to embalm jacob Egypt mourned and wept for him for 70. There was an army of people, literally a mass, almost like a, an exodus of people that traveled from Egypt at the death of Jacob. I don't know if I said Joseph, but Jacob, at the death of Jacob to go to his burial to celebrate his life and who he was. And yet here's the son of God. One man fights for his body. And a few women are there to watch where they laid him. It is, a, it is almost like turned on its head. 
the women at the beginning of the narrative in that Sunday morning, they were just simply going, just a few of them, the Bible tells us, some suggest maybe altogether five, three is mentioned in Mark, but maybe there were five altogether. They go to finish what they started. Uh, They're going there and almost as if Mark is walking along beside them in the conversation, overwhelmed with grief and in the silence. And one says to the other, maybe like you do when you're on a trip somewhere, you're going, uh, did I leave the oven on or or, I forgot this or how will this be when we get there? And one just kind of simply says out loud what maybe someone else had thought, how are we going to get in? How will we anoint him? This great stone is over the entrance. And so there, you see this understandable overwhelmingness in the life of these followers of Jesus. Thinking about the simplicity. Not what's coming next. Just wanting to honor their Lord. And, and maybe put some ointments and oils over his body. That it may not smell very bad as it decays in that tomb. Who will roll away the stone for us? I like that in verse number and looking up now I don't want to make too much about this and start a new um, new denomination over that little phrase but boy that's a good little phrase that reminds us in the midst of our darkness in the midst of our despair what are you to do well I think sometimes we need to look up here not just looking up from the ground and from your own things, but we need to learn to look up to God and find the answer and the help and salvation and hope in Him. That's what this whole narrative is about anyway. I don't think Mark put that in there just passingly. It is looking up, noticed not only the grief in which they experience, but, but the surprise. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back now, Mark puts this in there showing the, 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 the situation that the girls were in, the ladies were in. It was a very large stone. As if to say, one of the things, the first thing that surprises him is the fact that the stone was already rolled away. We read this morning in Matthew at our sunrise service that it, it, there was an earthquake and the stone rolls away. As if God is understanding their plight on their way out to the tomb. And he says, don't worry, I'll take care of the stone. You just go out there and see what I got for you. Rolling the stone away, not to let Jesus out, but to let them in and to see what has gone on. Not only do you see the surprise and the rolling away of the stone, verse number four, verse number five, you see the surprise of a young man referred to as a young man dressed in white robes. And to say they were alarmed is to put it mildly. I don't know about you, but graveyards can be very um, scary places, right? Especially at dark at night. And the last thing you want to do is see something supernatural or spiritual in the presence of a graveyard. And yet here they come to the tomb. They find a man in white. The Bible says, again, Matthew says their their clothes were like lightning. Here the angel standing there, the young man standing there, and he's about to guide them or sitting there, and he's about to guide them into what all of this means. Isn't it remarkable at this great event, God sends his messenger to his people to explain and to share and to give them hope. 
and encouragement. Well, the angel gives them several declarations, several statements in verse number six. Look at them with me. Not only do they see the surprise of the stone rolled away, they see the surprise of the angel, they see the surprise of his own message. And he said to them, the angel saying to them, do not be alarmed. Again, that, that's kind of like understatement to say what they were experiencing. As you see at the end of the narrative here in verse number 8, they were sorely alarmed. They, were, they couldn't even speak. They were terrified, trembling at all the events that had taken place. But he says, don't be alarmed. We might see elsewhere where he says, fear not. Don't be overwhelmed with fear. Listen to what's going on. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. Luke puts a question in front of that, doesn't he? You might recall it. When he says, you seek the living among the dead. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Here he's saying you're seeking Jesus. And just to make sure we're speaking about the same person, he goes further to clarify what Jesus he's speaking of, the one who was of Nazareth, the the one who was the Messiah and did all the things that he did. They were coming to, to seek him, not in a way that we seek him. We're called to seek him today. They were coming to seek him by anointing him, by honoring his death. They wouldn't bring him breakfast. And yet the angel is almost like, what are you doing? Why are you seeking the living among the dead? Why would you come here like that for? You should have brought breakfast, I guess, is maybe what he's saying. Because they didn't understand. They, they couldn't comprehend. And yet the angel tries to clarify, just so you know, we're not speaking of a different Jesus, the one who was crucified <laughs> and that has risen. You come seeking the one that died the other day, the one that hung on the cross and and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You come seeking the one who did the miracles and, and was treated as a criminal. You come seeking him, but he's not here. He's alive. You come seeking a body and, and the remains of, of your hope and, and all of your aspirations, which has died with him, with all of your, 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 your life, your love, what tomorrow will be like, all of that in the grave with this, this body, this remains of this Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I, I just want you to know that he's not here. In fact, he brings them in, telling us to come and see the place where they laid him. You know, the theologians often speak about the necessity to use right terminology. And here, not just here, but many other places, we find the Bible teaching us that the death of Christ was a necessity. By that, it wasn't just a good thing, or it wasn't just a thing that, that could happen or might happen or even needed to happen. It was something that, that must happen. There was a mustness to it. I think I probably invented that word, but you know what I mean. He had to die. In fact, we read in the Old Testament in Isaiah 53, and speaking in the necessary terms, it was the Father's will to crush him, to make him an offering for his people. 
One of the great scenes of that is seen in the garden just just minutes up before his arrest by the soldiers as he prays in the garden, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass through me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And the, the declaration of him going on through that process shows us the necessity that he had to die. Without the death of Christ, there would be no forgiveness of sin. Without the death of Christ, humanity would be, would be washed up. There would be no, no hope of everlasting life, no fellowship with God. There would be no eternity healing. But just as we come to understand the, the death of Christ being necessary, the, the resurrection likewise is seen in those terms. It isn't either or. We don't overemphasize one above the other. We come to the whole truth of the gospel that he died according to scripture and that he rose again according to scripture. Both of those necessary for the salvation of humanity. Your forgiveness is not only seen in the shedding of his blood, the giving of his life, but your restoration and your continual fellowship with God is seen in his indestructible life, as the Hebrew writer says. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 16.10, prophesying, looking forward, you will not abandon my soul to hell or Sheol. Christ had to die. Likewise, Christ had to rise again. So powerful and so magnificent is that truth that Paul, as he comes to speak about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, at the end of that discourse in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, goes into a taunt of death. Because Christ gaining the victory over the grave and gaining victory over the death, he closes out that great section by taunting the old enemy of humanity, and that is death itself. He says to us, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You can see that as some great enemy standing against us and, and having been conquered and chains and defeated and you're able to come by. You who I feared, oh, death, where, where's your power now? Where's your victory now? Where's your sting? He goes on to say the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is a law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We should say hallelujah right there. Thanks be to God. He must die. He spoke to his disciples that way. He must drink the cup that the Father gave him. But that must also extends to he must rise again for his work was only half finished at the cross. He will rise again, bringing us life, displaying his victory over the grave, the surprise of the message. He is not here. See for yourself. Come on in and look. <laughs> the Bible tells us that he, that Peter and John, as they come down and, and see the tomb, as they run there, John outruns the one Peter, and they get there and they, John stands at the door and Peter's like, mm -mm, I got to see this for myself. And he walks on in and he sees the clothes that they'd had him wrapped in laying there in place. 
This is not something God did in private or secret. It's not something that he didn't throw the door open of the tomb to say, come and see. The one who died on Calvary is the one who is now alive. One place, Paul says, 500 people at one time seeing him, testifying that he was victorious over the grave. But I want you to notice the third thing with me this morning. As we consider the surprise in which they received, I want you to notice the unrelenting grace. Verse number seven. And you may wonder what kind of person rises from the dead. What kind of person gains victory over the death? What kind of person will they be like? Now we know when we read the gospel accounts that Jesus was compassionate and he was, he was kind and, and he was merciful and he fed 5,000 people. That was pretty cool. Touched leopards, <laughs> raised a woman's dead son back from the dead who had no other, nothing else in life. But what would he be like when he himself is raised from the dead? What kind of person would he be? And I know that's a strange question, isn't it? You probably said, I never thought of that. Probably not. And the reason I ask that is because it's kind of awkward when you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. Your master and your Lord. And in his greatest moment, at the darkest hour in his life, you run the other way. You have fled. You have failed to stand up. You've, you've failed to follow him. You could only go so far and, and, and that is it. You, you would go no further. And, and at that deepest moment in his life were you found hiding for your own life. How would Jesus respond? Not just you. I mean, he singles out Peter here, doesn't he? As he says in verse number 7, but go tell his disciples. He's speaking of the ten. Thomas, of course, doesn't come to meet them on this first resurrection Sunday. He, he was still struggling with everything that goes on. But go tell the ten. Go tell my disciples that, that he's not here, that he's risen from the dead. Not just my disciples, but tell Peter also. Tell Peter also. You see God's grace extended to his followers. And it's not just his grace extended to his followers. It's almost put a, put a highlighter on the fact of Peter. Because here's a man that not only fled from Christ. I mean, he, he talked good. I'll die with you, Lord. Chopped a guy's ear off. I mean, that's something, right? But in the thick of it, denies, curses, curses, and calls a curse on himself if he's not telling the truth. Calls a curse upon himself for the very fact that I do not know him. Surely there's no place for somebody like that in the kingdom of God. 
he had seen the miracles of Christ. He walked with Christ. He, 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 had, he had been at the Mount Transfiguration with Christ. He had seen him in privilege more than anyone else. And yet out of all this high privilege, he, his sin is, is the greatest because of all that he had been exposed to. And yet Jesus affirming that the same God who said on the cross to the soldiers who were betting over his garments and the people who were cheering and yelling at him and making fun of him, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do is the same one on that resurrection Sunday says go tell Peter come you too his grace is is much much greater than your sin I don't care where you've at and what you've done the Bible reminds us in the life of Peter and his own denial of his Lord and Master Paul who was persecuting people and putting people to death and, and, and trying to stomp out the name of Christ becomes one by the grace of God to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Don't you see over and over? You're not even a blimp on the scale. And yet, grace, unrelenting grace at his resurrection. Unrelenting grace towards his followers and towards his disciples. And you and I should praise God for that because you and I have often failed a lot like that. I know we didn't wear sandals and, and run from Roman guards and all that other stuff unless you was in a play or whatever you was in. I, I know we didn't do that, but I know that, that my own heart, that I have failed miserably over and over and so have you. But the story of the resurrection is that Christ died for that failure. He died for that sin. He died for all of those things which marked us and tar us and and bring the guilt in our life. And that, that at his resurrection, he extends to us fellowship and forgiveness and belonging. He died for your sin and he raised for your justification and your communion with him. Go tell my disciples, just like I said, I'm coming Let them expect me, anticipate me. Oh, beloved, if you're saved here this morning, isn't that a joy? Because that's the same message. Not that he's rising from the dead, but the Bible says you and I should live in expectation that the one who raised from the dead is also coming back for those who are in him. We should live expecting. Go and wait on him. Now, we live every Sunday in light of that resurrection and that promise, go. Just like I said, I'm coming to them. I know I've often shared one of my papa's favorite passages as he used to preach. He was a primitive Baptist preacher. I call him papa. You probably call him something else. I don't know. You can talk about that later. Is that John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, surely I'm coming again to bring you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And he liked that. That's a good promise. And just like he said, he will rebuild that temple in three days. Just like he said, that grain of wheat that falls to the ground and dies will bring forth much fruit so is that promise that he will come again and bring us unto himself that where he is we might be also. He's not here, the angel says. He's gone. What do you do? Look, he says, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Every every resurrection account brings us back. Don't you remember Jesus told you this? 
It's a good reminder to us. He's good to his word, church. He fulfills his promises. Verse number 8, it says this in conclusion. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had secured them. You ever had a uh, you ever had a plan and then it was interrupted? You know, you, you had your day scheduled out and you were going off pretty good until you got out of the house, maybe until you got out of bed, I guess. Sometimes it feels that way. Can you imagine this group of women? They were coming here to anoint the body of Jesus. They were coming here to mourn a little, cry a little, reminisce over what Jesus did in the lifetime, how they followed him and all the things that they did. And they were coming and mourning and God had other plans. What did they do? They leave. They fled. (laughs) Not only do they leave the, the tomb. Why? Because Jesus is not there. They come trembling and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now I've read this last part, many, many different opinions of this. There is a collective idea of this that the women go so terrified of the vision and of the scene that had taken place at the garden that that despite the angel's command to go tell that they went away silenced, unable to say anything. There's a lot of agreement in that. You can see that the language here of trembling, the body just shaking uncontrollably, overwhelmed and astonished at what had taken place. The Gospel of Mark is unique in one way because whether or not you believe it's at the ending of the Gospel in verse number 8 or continues on through verse number 20, it leaves the story still yet to be finished. As if the reality as we read through the ending of this, we are confronted with the fact that Jesus is no longer in the grave. The tomb is empty. Come and see for yourself. And then it's kind of left. What will be your your response to that? Some may run in fear and hide. Some in unbelief. Even those who were at his ascension were there in unbelief. It says in Matthew chapter number 28. And yet others will go. Believing, filled with amazement and wonder at what God has done, they will go. Not only filled in amazement and wonder, but they will go and tell. They will go and tell. They will go and tell the disciples. They will go and tell others. That's really the great commission, isn't it? What God has commanded us to do. We don't preach and teach and share that an outdated message that Jesus Died and we just leave it at that. We preach the cross of Jesus Christ. We preach the significance of it. We preach the power of it. And we preach the reality that he is alive and seated at the right hand of the Father. We pray with the reality that he is alive and seated at the right hand of God. We live day in and day out with the reality that he is not in the grave. But he is alive and he will be forevermore. It changes everything, really, doesn't it? In fact, this small little eight-verse section in the Gospel of Mark is really the seed which has changed the world and everything we know the way it is today. The impact of the Gospel on the nations. He is not dead. He is alive. 
and the promise that he gives that any who would come to him, he would not cast out. And that the death that he died and the, the resurrection, the victory that he gained was a victory not just for himself because he had no sin. He didn't need to die for himself. His need, the mustness was for humanity's sake. It was for your sake this morning. There is no other Savior. There is no other way to be right between God and man. Our sin, as the Old Testament prophet has so boldly said, has separated us from our God. And yet because he did die, because he did take our place, because he was that substitute for, our, for us, then we can have the boldness to come to him, to believe in him, to trust him. And I hope that's, your, I hope that's you this morning. You know, in one way, our, our lives, our stories, our tomorrow is wrapped up in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our relationship to it. For some, it is a story of life and hope. For others, it's a much darker story. Because of unbelief and rejection of it, it is a story of condemnation. But you know, that is every one of our stories. That's how we all started out. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But thanks be to God that in that state, Christ demonstrated his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, he can never be good enough. Peter, the leader of the apostles, the disciples, was never good enough. It was in your badness that he died for you, demonstrated his love for you. Come to him in your badness, and he will forgive you, cleanse you, and give you new life. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time we can gather together this morning in this celebration of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. What a beautiful time of singing we've had today and our hearts just filled with the joy and praise and the different ways we offer it up to you today. Lord, I pray for this, this time of conversation, this time of fellowship, the remaining of our day that you'd let our thoughts just reminisce and think through just the joy and reality that he's not there, he's not in the tomb. He's alive. And what that means for us. Oh, and I pray for those here, any here this morning that does not know you, I pray that today, that they even right now in their seats, they would say, God, forgive me. Be merciful unto me, a sinner. I believe. And Lord, I pray that they would call unto you and you would gloriously save them. Lord, thank you for this day. In Jesus' name. Amen.